Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 33. It took Elihu an entire chapter to introduce the speech that he begins to deliver here. He waited a long time out of deference to his elders, but now he has to speak. He can't hold it in any longer. It'd be dangerous. The Spirit of God in him is bursting forth and threatens to tear him apart if he does not share all of his insights into Job's particular situation. That's what he told us by way of introduction. And now finally, he is ready to speak. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Elihu begins his speech by saying that he is a very spiritual man, but still a man nonetheless. I may overpower you with my brilliance, but fear not. I was pinched off from a piece of clay just as you were. Francis Anderson says here, He is so self-important that he cannot avoid ruining the effect by being patronizing. Tremper Longman III offers a similar assessment. He says, In the opening, one gets the impression of an excitable, overconfident, and self-centered young man, closed quote. Of course, we've all met young people like this. They are gifted. They are brilliant. But they haven't yet seen enough of the world or felt enough of their own weaknesses and limitations to develop caution and humility. Elihu is eloquent and insightful, and he says some incredibly memorable and useful things. But On the whole, he grossly overestimates his ability to make sense of what only God can see. Verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? Here Elihu summarizes what he finds most distressing about the testimony of Job. Job has said that he was pure without transgression and that there is no iniquity in him. Now, to be clear, Job never actually said that. In fact, Job made it very clear on several occasions that he knew very well that he was a sinner. In chapter 7, verse 21, Job is trying to figure out 
why God hasn't accepted the sacrifices that he made for his sins. He said, why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job, like his friends, understood a connection between sin and suffering. But Job was careful in his religious observances, including the practice of making offerings of repentance for his sin and the sin of his family, which the text mentions in chapter 1, verse 13. So Job knows he is a sinner. He's taken what he believes to have been appropriate steps, but without the expected response from God. Then again in chapter 14, Job got thinking about how trees die and then seem to come to life again through the birth of a tiny shoot. So maybe it will be like that for me, Job says. Maybe God will press me down into Sheol and his wrath will pass over me, but then he will call me back to life. He says in chapter 14, verse 17, For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. So clearly, Job knew he had sin in his life. He talked about it a fair bit. He never denied being a sinner. He just said that there was no iniquity in him that corresponded to or seemingly justified the horrific series of calamities that he has experienced. So that's that's a very different thing. Elihu is exaggerating and misrepresenting what Job has said. Now, Job did say, that God wouldn't or hadn't yet shown up to explain himself. And Elihu responds to that statement in verses 14 and following. He says, For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Now, let's pause here. We've been a little hard on Elihu, painting him as a young, charismatic, arrogant, and self-centered young man, as most of the commentators do. But remember, the book of Job is demanding. No one in this book is totally wrong, and no one in this book is totally right, except God, which is kind of the point. So we can't disregard everything the friends say because they are incorrect in the application of what they say to Job. Much of what they say is true, just not true in this case. Similarly, we can't embrace everything Job says just because he is right in his central affirmation. Job is correct. His suffering is not due to any particular sin on his part. But a lot of the things he says in his own defense are irrational, emotional, and excessive. And we have to apply the same discipline to everything said by young brother Elihu. Some of what he says is comic. Some of it is pretentious. And much of it ends up landing in exactly the same place as the three older friends. But every once in a while, he says something brilliant, something different, something no one has yet brought to the table. And I think we're seeing some of that here. Elihu is saying that Job is wrong to charge God with silence. God is never silent. He's always speaking, 
The issue is that we're often not listening, or at least not listening in the right direction. We're often too narrow. We put God in a tiny little box, and we never expect him to be communicating with us through what I suppose we could call extraordinary means. Elihu is spiritually sensitive. We've called him a charismatic now on a couple of occasions. Obviously, we don't mean that in a 20th century kind of way. We mean that he is something of a mystic. He thinks that he has authority to speak into this situation on the basis of the Spirit of God stirring within him. But he isn't wrong to believe that God can speak to people through dreams. How could anyone who reads the Bible deny that? Joseph was guided by God through dreams. Daniel was guided by God through dreams. And it was not only the great and godly men of the Old Testament who had these experiences. God warned Abimelech in a dream in Genesis 20, and he warned Laban in a dream in Genesis 31. And the pattern continues in the New Testament. In fact, you you can't get too far into the New Testament before encountering a number of important dreams. And even outside the Bible, on into Christian history, we have reports of God's guidance being given and received through dreams. Martin Luther's life was saved by a dream that God gave to Katie. Now, obviously, obviously, we would want to say some wise and prudent things here uh, by way of parameter and limitation around all of what we've just said. We would want to point out that dreams should never be treated authoritatively. Dreams should not be classed as revelation. Dreams can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. Dreams often mean nothing at all, but sometimes they do. Matthew Henry, hardly anyone's idea of a wild-eyed charismatic, says this while commenting on this passage. He says, when he stirred up conscience, that ordinary deputy of his in the soul to do its office, he took that opportunity, either when deep sleep fell on men, for though dreams mostly come from fancy, some may come from conscience, or in slumberings, when men are between sleeping and waking, reflecting at night upon the business of the foregoing day, or projecting in the morning the business of the ensuing day, then is a proper time for their hearts to reproach them for what they have done ill, and to admonish them for what they should do. I think that's a very balanced perspective. Most dreams come from fancy, he says, but some come from conscience and may be used by God to reproach us or to direct us towards our duty, just as Elihu said. God is gracious. It may well be, Brother Job, that God has been speaking to you in this way or in that way, and you simply haven't been paying attention. That's a fair point. He goes on to say in verse 19, Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of youthful vigor. 
Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before man and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Here, Elihu says that God often speaks to men and women through suffering. Here, he sounds very much like C.S. Lewis, who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, closed quote. I don't think we would want to argue with that. We would only want to notice that like the three older friends, Elihu is saying some true things that do not actually apply to Job's particular situation. This suffering has not come about in order to communicate something to Job. It has come about in order to communicate something about Job. We know that from chapters 1 and 2. But Job doesn't know that, and Elihu doesn't know that either. Elihu continues his speech in verse 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. Now, of course, we're a little bit shocked by Elihu's capacity for pomposity and pretension. It takes some moxie to say to an older man, be silent and I will teach you wisdom. I'm pretty sure that's another example of how not to minister to hurting people. So there is a lot to disregard in Elihu's manner. And again, we have noted that while he says true things, they do not in fact applied to Job's particular situation. However, let's be careful not to miss the beauty and utility of some of what he has said. And and pause there and understand that. Sometimes it is an act of supreme humility and wisdom to be able to learn things from what foolish people say. I think sometimes God hides a little bit of wisdom in the mouth of of a generally foolish and ridiculous person in order to test our own humility. Matthew Henry says something marvelous here. He says, What a friend God is to our welfare. He speaketh to us once, yea, twice. When one warning is neglected, he gives another, not willing that any should perish. God is a wonderful friend to our welfare. He speaks to us in a variety of ways. Friends, he spoke once to a man through a donkey. And here I think he is speaking to us through a very proud and pretentious young man. He's reminding us of some true things. God is a wonderful friend. He speaks to us and pleads with us to leave our sin and to embrace the means of mercy he has provided. That is true, marvelously and gloriously true. Thanks be to God.
And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.